Welcome to this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. We're so happy you're joining us today as we discuss the first stage in salvation history, creation. In this episode, we'll be discussing the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, what it has to tell us about who God is, about who man is, and about man's role in the world. Whether you're new to the Bible or you've been reading it for a long time, the Bible Readers Podcast is the place for you to grow in your reading of the Holy Scriptures and apply it to your life. So let's jump into it. Hi, thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley. I'm a Roman Catholic convert. I've devoted my life to the studying and teaching of the Bible, and I want to help you read the Bible for yourself today. So we're talking about creation. We're talking about in the beginning, uh, the some of the most famous chapters of the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, which if you haven't read them already, I encourage you, pause this episode, go sit down, open your Bible, whatever Bible you've got. If you don't have one, go online, go use Bible Gateway. Uh, If you're not sure which translation to use, use the one you have or uh, use uh, the one we'll be using is the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, it's the RSVCE, but whatever Bible you have is great. We're going to be talking about Genesis 1 and 2. And I think that Genesis 1 and 2, there are a lot of misconceptions about how to read Genesis 1 and 2 uh, and what we can take away from it. So we'll talk about that today. I think that Genesis uh, is an extremely radical book in its message. It might be a little surprising. I think that the author of the book of Genesis is promoting ideas that are far beyond its time when it was written and I think have a ton to give us today to understand ourselves, understand our relationship with God, uh, and understand who God is. You know, we're going to talk about uh, the entirety of the salvation history era, and I think as we begin, it's really important to preface our discussion by saying that the Bible, as we talked about in the past episode, is this large collection of books. The Bible's really a library in and of itself, and that library contains lots of different stories, lots of different kinds of stories, lots of books that are not stories at all, but they're rather, they're poetry, they're wisdom. Uh, Some of them are uh, letters. Uh, So, and if you've read the Bible before, you're probably familiar with a lot of that. But I think it's really important to emphasize at the outset of our discussion that the Bible is, while it is a collection of a bunch of different stories, it really only tells one story. And that's the story of salvation history. So what's really amazing about this is that as we unpack this story, one of the things that we're going to realize, and I hope you can see that even at the outset here, one of the things we're going to realize is that the Bible tells us our story. It's a story that's connected to us. And there is really there, there is this aha moment for me of reading the Bible when I realized that I was a character in this story. The story that we're going to open up in Genesis today is a continuous continuous one. It's the one that goes on today that you and I are a part of, uh, which is really amazing. So let's talk about Genesis. And as we begin, I want to emphasize 
that it's really important for us to ask the right questions of the author. If we're not asking the questions that the author is intend intending to answer, then he's then we're not going to glean what it is that he wants us to glean from this text. And I think the key or the 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 main uh, uh, difficulty here when it comes to Genesis is we ask the question, well, is it true? Is it literally true? And usually what's meant by that is something along the lines of, like, should we believe the Genesis account of creation that, would, if we were to take it literally, would be giving us, like, an, a young earth, 6,000 years old, uh, a, a rejection of, like, the theory of evolution? Uh, or should we reject the Bible and believe the scientists? And I think that's the wrong question to ask. I believe that the Bible is true in what it's trying to communicate. And I do not think that the author of the book of Genesis is trying to communicate truth about the age of the earth, the origin of species, or the evolution of mankind. That is not the, the focus of Genesis's uh, message. And if we try to glean answers about those about scientific issues from this religious text, we're going to get poor science and bad religion. I think if we ask the right questions, though, we can accept prevailing scientific theories and we can actually understand what it is that the author is trying to communicate. Because the author of the book of Genesis didn't sit down and go, well, I really want people to know how old the earth is. Well, I really want people to know uh, uh, how the different species became. That That is not his intention. Instead, he's trying to tell us a story about who God is, who man is, and what God's relationship with man is. So we're going to not ask these questions about like how and when. Instead, we're going to ask questions like who and why. So we begin in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void and covered the face of the deep. And the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Right away, the author of Genesis is communicating a radical message. You see, in the ancient world, monotheism isn't really believed by anyone. And yet, the author of the book of Genesis starts out with, in the beginning, who? God. How many gods? Just one, just God. And this God is, is, what did he do? He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is creator of all that is. You see, in the ancient world, all religions were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And there'd be a god of the ocean and a god of the sky and a god of this land and a god of that land. And they all operated out of their own rules. And the book of Genesis begins right away by saying, no, 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 there is only one God. He is the creator of all things, and there is no other God. The Genesis message is one that is, uh, it counteracts all of ancient religious tradition in the first three words. So the he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and also right away, the author introduces us to a conflict. Did you catch it? The conflict is that this world that is created has two major problems. It's formless and it's void, meaning it doesn't have shape, there's no form to it, and it's empty. 
And so the rest of the first chapter of Genesis is going to address those things. Here's the other thing. The spirit is hovering over the waters. What does the water signify here? Well, water, if you've ever been like hit by a wave at the beach and tumbled with it, you can kind of like viscerally understand this, that water is a, a, a symbol for chaos. So there's the it's there's no shape, it's empty, it's chaotic, and the rest of the first chapter of Genesis is going to focus on those things. So what happens? In on day 1, God says, "Let there be light." And there was light. And he separates the the light from the darkness. In day 2, God creates the water and the sea. In day 3, he creates the dry land. Okay. I want to pause really quick, but because I, I think that's interesting. Again, going back to our question or our uh, our question about uh, what kinds of questions to ask. If we're asking questions, scientific questions here, there's light, there's uh, uh, the sea and land now, and there are multiple days that have happened. The first day, and there was evening, and there was morning, and then the next day. Well, the sun hasn't been created yet. So how are their days? And again, questions about how and when are the wrong questions to ask. You think the author of the Genesis knows how a day is measured? Of course he does. So what's he doing here? Well, he's using a symbolic structure, a poetic structure, to communicate a story. He's not concerned with telling us about how old the earth is. He's concerned with telling us about who God is, which He's already given us this radical idea that there's only one God. And he's also said that that God is the creator of all things, not just of, of his uh, own section of creation. So he's not concerned with questions about how. We're not going to ask those. But I think it, it shows the futility of some of those questions if we say, like, well, how are there our days? There's no sun. That's something that makes it clear to me that the questions that I'm that I'm asking should be focused more about who and why. So two things I want to take away before we move on to the next three days. That God is he's, he's light and darkness. He's creating the sea and the sky. He's creating the dry land. He's doing all these things. And at the end, what's he saying? He's saying it's good. God looks at it and he sees that it's good. One of the crazy things about... Um, I don't know if it's crazy, but one of the really interesting things about the creation narrative Genesis, especially if we uh, compare it to other ancient uh, uh, creation myths like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the uh, the Enuma Elish, uh, is that it's very obvious that the author is emphasizing the original goodness of creation. This is something that we don't find in other ancient mythology. In other ancient mythology, what's emphasized is evil. The evil of creation. And it makes sense, like the, the Enuma Elish is this Babylonian uh, uh, myth. It's, it's fairly interesting. But one of the basic premises is that, uh, that the earth and mankind are created from the blood of this slain dragon. I read this to students sometimes and talk to them about it, and I, I'll read them about the story of, of this creation from the blood of the dragon. 
and say, well, what do you think about this? And they, they almost always give me the same response. Well, like, well, that was silly. They go like, hold on. I don't think you're reading carefully enough. Because what is he trying to do? Do you think that the author of these things went, well, it's pretty obvious we came from a, the, from a literal dragon? No. When they're telling these creation myths, they're pondering their own identity. They're pondering their relationship with God. They're pondering their own origins. And we're also trying to understand this mystery of evil in the world. And they look at mankind and they say, well, it's obvious we have the blood of something sinister running through our veins. And I actually find that to be somewhat compelling. But Genesis tells a much different story. They say, no, no, no. It's not the blood of something sinister running through your veins. It's not, you are not merely evil. In fact, you are good. You were created good in the beginning. So then the question is, well, what happened? And that's what we're going to explore next week when we talk about the fall. But right now, I want to show that like we've seen a couple of radical things from the Genesis text so far. And the first one, of course, is this monotheism, this belief in one God who is supreme, transcendent ruler over all. And the other thing is this essential, original goodness of creation. That's something that's entirely unique to the creation story in Genesis, especially when we compare it to other ancient uh, creation mythology. So we've got the first three days. On the fourth day, God creates the stars, the moon, and the sun. On the fifth day, God creates the fish and the birds. And on the sixth day, God creates the animal and the animals. And at the pinnacle of creation, God creates man. And before we talk about the creation of man, I want to talk about the structure that this that the author of the book of Genesis is creating. Did you catch it? Remember our, our problem at the beginning of creation. There's chaos symbolized by the water. There, It's formless. There's no shape to it. And it's void. It's empty. There's nothing in it. Well, what happens in the first three days? Light, uh, sky and water, dry land, shape. The first three days, God gives shape to it. What happens in the second three days? Days four, five, and six. They, God creates, he fills the sun or the sky with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the fifth day, he fills the oceans and the sky with birds and fish. And on the sixth day, he fills the dry land with animals and man. So this day structure that the author is using, again, is not meant to say something literal about um, six days of creation relating to certain eras and eons of the world. Instead, he's using it this poetically to show how God is systematically bringing order into the chaos of, of being. He is bringing order and he's filling it, and he's filling it with things that he says are good. And of course, the pinnacle of that is man. Man is placed, and man is said to be good, but he's not just said to be good. He is made in the image of God. Well, what does that show? And there's a lot of a lot of really excellent literature that deals with the theological concept of the image of God, or imago dei is the Latin term. Uh, but one of the one of the things, and this is what I'll focus on here, is that that mankind 
is made to be the children of God. People, I have three sons. I have six children, but I have three sons. And my sons look very much like me. Um, and I remember when my uh, my oldest son, Peter, was having his like 18-month-old pediatrician appointment, something like this. And I came home from work and asked my wife, how, is he, how did it go? And she said, everything's fine. And she laughed because the doctor said, well, he, she came to him and said, he, uh, you know, your son, he, he looks, everything looks healthy, but he is 12th percentile in height and 70th percentile in head size. And my wife laughed and shook her head and said, yeah, sounds like his dad. You know, when people see my sons, they see an image of me. And of course my wife as well, but my sons especially, um, resemble me. What does the author want to say when he says image of God? Well, he's not literally saying, well, Adam looks like God, but he is saying that Adam does resemble God in this, in this, in this mysterious way. Adam and Eve are like God. Mankind is like God. They are, they are the children of God. When we look at them, what we will see is this picture of the divine. And again, as we said earlier, that this is a radical message. And it's one we don't find elsewhere in the ancient world. That mankind and all of mankind, not just certain people, all of mankind resemble God they're, as they're made in his image. The other thing that shows this is that God gives man dominion over the earth. He gives him stewardship. So mankind is created and we we're, we see him, him placed above creation in that he's made in the image of God and that God appoints him to be the ruler of this cosmos he's created. So again, we have at the beginning of the chapter of Genesis, chaos, formlessness, uh, uh, it's void. And throughout the chapter, order is brought into being. Order is brought into the chaos that there is now shape. There, the, the void is now filled and set atop that is a man who has dominion is going to steward the world to maintain and continue that order. Those are the six days of creation. And then the seventh day, God rests. Again, if we're asking literal questions, we're going to get the wrong answers. Why does God need to sleep? Well, it's not because he's tired. No, he's God. In fact, how did he create? He spoke. There's this very um, uh, mysterious idea of his words bringing things into being. So he's not resting because like, whew, that was a, a, a busy week. Instead, he rests on the seventh day, this, this, um, this number of completion that shows unity and harmony. There is completion to his work of creation. From the chaos, there is now order. Uh, there is now a, a ruler who is above the, the world. Mankind is placed there. And, it, and everything is good. So what does God do? Well, he rests because there is harmony. That is, the, the rest of God is this symbol that shows us that there is peace and goodness on the earth. Now, 
in Genesis 2, I think we have another really, really interesting story. Because if you notice, and this is something if we're just focused on literal answers again, we're not going to get because we're going to miss this. That in Genesis 2, the story restarts. The story goes back to the beginning. You can read in, in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, really interesting stuff there, but it's saying there's no plants and God made man. That doesn't fit the order of Genesis chapter 1. Do you think the author knows that? Of course he does. He's just retelling this story to emphasize another thing. Because what he's not doing is telling a literal scientific history. He's telling a symbolic story that's meant to communicate truth about who God is. Who is he? God is the creator of all things. He is one. There's only one, there's only one God and he is alone. Uh, uh, he is God alone. And he, uh, what does he do? He creates everything. He creates especially man. What is man? He's set above creation. He's meant to steward the earth. He's made in the image of God. He resembles the divine. So he has this special relationship with God as God's child. Those are not the literal answers to scientific questions. They're answers that get to uh, the, the deepest, mysterious uh, uh, groundings of our being. So we, we're avoiding those scientific questions. because, And the author knows this because he's telling two different stories. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have a more agrarian focus. In fact, most scholars believe that the Genesis 1 narrative is something that comes uh, uh, much later. And Genesis 2 is a really, really early um, uh, uh, writing in Genesis. So we have in Genesis Two, we have the introduction of the garden, the garden of Eden. And in this garden, there are a couple of things. The first thing is that there are these, uh, there are these two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, why not? Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is this symbol that represents, uh, the natural limitation of mankind, that mankind does not sit above good and evil, that it is not for man to decide what is good and what is evil. It is for man to obey God's direction there. We have the tree, the two trees in the garden. But then we have a couple of interesting things. We have, uh, let, me, let me just read this to you because it's one of those things that, again, people just pass over. Um, I want us to, to really sink our teeth in and uh, into the text here and delve into the places where we think there is the, the, the least amount of value, if that makes sense. Uh, one of the things I think that people are tempted to do when they read the Bible is they, uh, they get to things that are confusing or strange because the Bible's strange. It was written by people thousands of years ago. It's strange to us today. They get to things like that that are strange and, uh, and they go, well, this is just weird Bible land speak and they move on. But remember, the author of Genesis meant to write what he's writing. 
So if it's strange, if it sticks out to us, that actually might be a clue that there's something more going on and we should look closer. So look at verse 10 if you're reading along with us now. Uh, and I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 10. We see a river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows out of uh, flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. God took the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. Okay, I'm going to pause there. So if we think about the design of what we have, we have the the Garden of Eden that has these two sacred items that reside in it, these two trees. Then we have these four rivers that flow in four different directions. And around these four rivers, there is precious uh, metals, like gold. Um, there are gemstones, like onyx. And then there's bdellium, which is a tree resin that is used in, uh, it's very similar to myrrh. It's used in the making of incense. Okay, so what is Eden? Well, it's this pinnacle of creation of God that has a, a, a person in it to, to till and to keep it. There are rivers that flow out. It's surrounded by gemstones, precious metals, and incense. The Garden of Eden is a temple. It's a place where God meets man. What's really interesting about this too is those two were two verbs to till and to keep. The the Hebrew words here used are uh, is, uh, words abad and shamar, and they're words that can be translated till and keep, but they're also words that are used um, in the book of Exodus to describe the role of the Levitical priests in Israel worshiping at the temple. And the word can also be uh, uh, words can also be tra translated to say, to me. To, to guard and to serve. That is the role of a priest. So what else do we learn about Adam here and Eve? What else do, so what else do we learn about Adam and Eve here? They are put there as these priests in the garden. And what does a priest do? What's the ultimate role of a priest? Well, the role of a priest is to bring God to the people, bring God to the world. And that's symbolized with by these rivers as well, because where are the rivers going? They're flowing out of Eden in all of the directions of the world. So God has placed man in this garden. It's, it, it's structured. We have these three days and then these other three days that bring this order into being. Mankind is set above it. Mankind is, is called good, made in the image of God. And, uh, and then he is told to till and to keep, to guard and to serve in the Garden of Eden. And he has this special communion with God as his son. So again, none of those things are answers that we get 
to scientific questions. They're all answers about who God is, who man is, and what man's relationship with God is. And what's emphasized in the book of Genesis is this essential original goodness of all things, of, of all of creation. The other thing, there's only, I'll, I'll mention this because I think it's important and, and I don't want to skip over it, is that uh, there's only one thing in the garden that's said is that not to be good. And that's that man is alone. And so God creates woman out of the side of Adam. And I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit cliche, but I think it actually goes back to St. Thomas Aquinas that he, he says that a woman is created out of, the, out of the side of man symbolically because she's not created out of, out of, from, from the, the feet of man so that man is above her. She, and she's not created out of his head so that she is above him. She's created out of his side because they are equals and partners in this work that God is commissioning them to be or to have or to do, excuse me. Um, so the, the only thing that, that is bad is that man is alone. And of course, it, the Genesis 2 account ends with the statement that they're naked and unashamed. And why are they unashamed? Well, because there's no sin. They have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to be guilty of. The world is good. When we look at the world around us, it's really easy to see so much pain and suffering. I'm sure you can think of places around the world right now where that's happening. I'm sure you can think of places in your communities where there's incredible pain and suffering. And I bet there's even places in your own life where you've had to endure, or maybe you are enduring great suffering. Ancient people went through great suffering as well. And a lot of them looked at that and they said, well, what, where does all this come from? Where, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? And they told stories that communicated what they believed about those answers. And all of the ancients, except for Genesis, end up thinking, well, the world comes from a place that is dark, depraved, and evil. And the Genesis story doesn't. The Genesis story boldly proclaims the one God, and it boldly proclaims that man is made in the image of God, and that man was created for a world that was good. This essential original goodness is the key to understanding this first chapter of Genesis that God or the author wants us to understand that in the beginning things were good. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't shy away from a discussion about uh, the mystery of evil and pain and suffering and sin. It's going to do that in the next chapter. It's going to uh, deeply discuss that. The rest of the Bible is going to be talking about how man lost this or essential original goodness. Um, so it's not going to, to ignore that discussion at all. Uh, but it's a really important focus for us to say that man is, uh, and creation is in the beginning good. So uh, just a little recap of what we've talked about in Genesis one through and two is we've said, ask the right kinds of questions. Don't come to it with questions about how and when or questions that are, are looking for scientific answers. We're not going to get those from Genesis. We shouldn't look for them there. Uh, instead, ask good questions about who we are. What is God, what is the author trying to tell us about 
um, about who God is, about who man is, about what man's relationship with God is. Um, we've seen that the Genesis has a radical concept of monotheism that we don't see anywhere else in the ancient world. Uh, we've seen these uh, two creation stories. This first one uh, talking about how God brings this order into the chaos of being. Uh, and the second one that focuses on the role of man as a priest in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and we've seen that God and man have this relationship as as son, father and son in, in the Garden of Eden that is defined by man being made in the image of God. If you're interested in learning more about the creation story, please visit our website at thebiblereaderspodcast.com. There will be a wealth of resources there as well as show notes for you to access. Next week, we will be discussing the fall. So if you're reading along, be sure to read Genesis 3 before next week. That is just one chapter, so it won't take you long. If you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you kindly subscribe and rate us on whatever podcast app you're using. It greatly helps us get our content out to others. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. We will see you next week.